Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Polari is a secret language that became popular in England and Wales from the 1930s to the 1960s in theatres and variety halls, with gay men in particular using the slang as both a code to identify members of the community and also to speak freely amongst themselves without fear of exposing their sexuality. Homosexual sex was illegal in Britain until the passage of the Sexual Offences Act in 1967. Used to avoid imprisonment and violence, the slang is a mixture of Italianate phrases, rhyming slang and colloquialisms that varies somewhat depending on the group who use it. Although Polari reached the height of its popularity in the mid-20th century, its origins date back several centuries, with roots in a rudimentary language used for communication between sailors around the Mediterranean. It then grew into an earlier form of the language called Parliari, and was used by vagrants, performers, sailors, buskers, prostitutes and Romany travellers in the 1700s and 1800s. Parliari was made up of, in part, Romany words, mixed with thieves' cant, a secret language of robbers and hustlers in Great Britain, and also backslang, pronouncing a word as if it was spelled backwards. When it found its way to Britain, it arrived mainly in port cities, and it gradually began to be used by gay men and female impersonators. Although Polari had Parliari as a base, once in Britain it was transformed with a variety of influences in addition to the backslang. Those included Yiddish, Cockney rhyming slang and American Air Force slang. Also incorporated was the broken Italian which was used by street puppeteers who performed Punch and Judy shows. These shows have origins in the 16th century Commedia dell'arte, and they're still a common sight in many British seaside towns. In the latter half of the 1960s, the popularity of Polari began to fade in the gay community based on several factors. When homosexual sex acts were no longer criminal, the need for a concealing language faded. By the 1960s, many began to think of it as somewhat vulgar, as it was often used to gossip about sexual encounters. At the same time, the radio sketch comedy show Round the Horn introduced two characters, Julian and Sandy, who spoke a version of Polari. Although many listeners thought these were gibberish words, introducing them to the mainstream further impacted their practical use as a secret or underground language. By the 1970s, Polari had declined in use dramatically, although some words such as drag or naff or camp found their way into common usage and they're still part of our everyday language. However, Polari is currently experiencing a little bit of a renaissance, with renewed academic studies, a short film in 2015 entitled Putting on the Dish, which was done entirely in Polari, and even an app for those who want to incorporate Polari into their day-to-day -day conversations. Here's an extract from that film, which was made by London filmmaking duo Brian and Carl. The film is freely available to watch on YouTube, and I'll put a link on the website page for this episode, and in the show notes. You from round here, then? More or less. Iron is the place to be. 
Owner Bats, what size are your plates? Ten, I think. What about your lappers? They're size ten too. But you play the Striller's real boner. Is this your usual spot? How do you mean? I've got your number, Ducky. Where's your flowery then? Flitterhouse Road. Well, I've a Benkove up that way, Pauline. Pauline Mark? That's the one. Can't swing a cat, but in a cove. How is Pauline? She's had an anti-bully fake. Dyed her eye or her ends a right mess. Anti-boner. I hope she vagaries straight to the crimper. Well, that's where she'd just been. Pallone tried to give her an Irish multi-palaver. Pauline told her to shove a shikel up a kyber. She didn't say that. Mate, we ducky ween. You're actual English. Yeah, she's all wind and piss, Pauline. She's still with Phyllis, then? And she heard. She's been a real boner over. Blowing the groundsels, ling grappling dilly boys, trolling the back slums. She had to be battered twice last month. She didn't. Pauline just stretch a case. Trolled in one notch, she devoured a Phyllis plate in some shin bars she blagged in the brandy lap. Dish the dirt. It's all over grumble for Pauline. Nancy Denali up to her elbow in the national handbag. She'd only just gone in for a remould. Had to refake her entire basket. Putting on the dish has been credited by some with reviving a little of the interest in Polari. The film also features in a recent title from Reaction Books, Fabulosa, by Paul Baker. Paul is Professor of English Language at Lancaster University, and he recently spoke with Dr Paul Cowdell of the Folklore Society on our behalf about the book and about Polari in general. Here's their discussion. So, first off, uh, welcome and thank you for coming on. Paul Baker, uh, the author of the very lovely book, Fabulosa, the story of Polari, Britain's secret gay language, uh, which came out a couple of years back in paperback. from reaction uh and uh, i think we're only now belatedly catching up with a lot of things that were published over the last couple of years um polari is well paul perhaps you could tell us what polari is <laughs> thanks paul it's great it's great to be um be invited on to the um podcast um so polari um is it's a secret way of using language. Um, I'm a bit cautious about calling it a full language. Um, some people have called it a language variety or even an anti-language. Um, some people have said it's just a slang or a collection of words. But putting all of those definitional issues aside, it's a, it's a type of language um, that was used for secrecy um, mainly by, by gay men in the early 20th century um, as a way of identifying each other um, as a way of talking about topics that they couldn't have really talked about in public spaces, um, as a way of kind of forming a sense of community as well and initiating each other into that community, and also as a way of just having a laugh as being funny or, or camp. Um, so it, it's lots of things, but it's also fascinating. Well, yes, yeah, and, and that comes across very clearly in the book. Uh, but that kind of sense of cohesive um, community building uh, and you're very careful in the book to explain that it's not just one community, but that, that sense of community building is precisely, I think, what appeals, what makes this book so valuable for folklorists, because you can see the generation of a self-identity. Um, but I, I wanted to, I mean, Polari is a, an extremely high-profile secret language, isn't it? 
<laughs> it's hiding in it plain is, sight. <laughs> it is now. Yes, it wasn't so much in the fifties and earlier. I think um, you know, it was. It was never really written down properly. Um, you know, people people did use it occasionally in diary entries and things like that, but. Um, it was hard to kind of get held of an issue part of that community. What changed all of that and has made it much more popular now is goes back to the 1960s when it was used in a, a radio comedy sketch show called Round the Horn. Um, and this was a weekly show that went out on Sunday afternoons. Um, so it was, a, it was also a family show, which is kind of ironic that it had Polari in it, which is, um, often has quite, quite rude words in it. Um, but they were in, in secret, so people couldn't understand necessarily what they meant. So this show had two characters called Julian and Sandy, um, who were played by um, Hugh Paddock and Kenneth Williams. And they were two playing two out-of-work actors, very camp and quite obviously gay, I think, if, um, if you were kind of old enough to, to kind of spot that. Um, and they would sort of chat away. Um, they didn't use an enormous amount of plurality, obviously, if they had, you wouldn't have been able to understand the sketches, but they used enough here and there, so you could kind of often figure out what the words meant. Um, and then they had the occasional longer longer phrases in as well. Um, and these these sketches were incredibly popular. Um, the the, the programme itself was, was a very popular show. Um, you know, whole families listened to it. Um, and I think in a way that introduced Polari, or the concept of it, to, to the British population. And you know, that, this was from 1967 and onwards. So by that point, I think maybe it, it kind of lost a little bit of, it, of, of its usefulness. Um, you know, for people using it in secret context. I mean, it has been said that even by the late 60s, it was kind of on its way out anyway. It stopped being as fashionable as it was. So I think maybe a combination of just, you know, fashions changing, times changing, the, also the decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1967. Um, and then also Julian and Sandy kind of spoiling the secret a little bit, I think, um, kind of all contributed towards kind of making it less popular to be used by the gay community, but also making it more well-known outside the community at the same time. And I mean, to some extent, I, I think its appearance at the time of decriminalisation points to, does it point to a, a decline in the need for the language? Um, That's a good question, yeah. Um, I, mean, I think decriminalisation didn't change everything overnight and in fact in some circumstances it made things worse because I think now it was sort of in the public eye and the police decided they were going to do something about it so there was a bit of a backlash um, you know, from certain members of the, the police and the arrests actually went up not down um, but it, it did mean that there was there was a little change I think change in, in atmosphere people felt that for once for the first time they could assemble and without the fear of, of you know, being arrested just for being in, in a building with other people. Um, and I think the younger people who maybe didn't have, you know, that, that long sort of experience of, of decades of having to hide themselves and be secretive, um, the younger people wanted, you know, wanted more and, you know, expected more. So they, they campaigned for liberation. Um, and that, a lot of that was about being visible and being out. Um, and Polari, which was this sort of language of secrecy, um, was seen as not not really that helpful for those girls. Um, it was also seen as a bit ghettoizing um, and also a bit offensive as well. I think some people said, you know, some of the words in it and the way that it was used kind of were insulting towards um, ethnic minorities or, or, or towards women and also insulting towards gay people themselves sometimes, <laughs> um, you know. So, 
So it was kind of seen as a bit surplus to requirements, I think, in the sort of 70s and 80s and sort of had a bit of a dip. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that. But if we could maybe go back a little to where did it come from? Oh, that's a really... What feeds into it? <laughs> really good question. Lots and lots of different different kind of sources that um, can come into it. I, I think the one that I would probably say is, 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 is the clearest is, is something called Parliari, which already sounds like Polari, so you can sort of see the, the connection there. Um, and Parliari was a, a language used in the 19th century, um, which was used by a range of, of kind of travelling people, people who were entertainers, buskers, um, beggars used it, pe- um, people who worked in fairgrounds used it a bit as well. Um, they sometimes call it slightly different names, but when you know, I've looked at the different vocabularies associated, and there's quite a lot of overlap, even though we've got lots of different groups um, or using different different words for different things, there, there is overlap. Um, and parliari seems to be the, the kind of term which they cluster around. Um, so it, you know, these, these were people who were kind of on the fringes of society, I guess. They were kind of stigmatised, they often had no fixed abode, so they were travelling for work and purposes from, from city to city. Some of them had travelled overseas. Um, some of them had been sailors. Some of them had worked on punch and duty store um, kind of um, entertainment um, outfits, and then they'd come over to the UK as well. So you find bits of Italian um, in Pagliari as well. Um, and then some kind of older languages, and slangs, um, Kant, for example, which is a kind of Elizabethan um, form of language used by criminals, which has sort of overlaps again with Pagliari. So you've got all these different people using this language, um, and it's not really associated with gay people at that point. It's associated with more of entertainers. Gradually, it starts being used in more entertainment contexts. Gradually, then, it starts, starts to kind of migrate into the Victorian music halls, um, the sort of late 19th century and then from that you have the sort of the more established theatres of the 20th century in the West End and that's when you start to see you know being associated more with theatrical people and then via then via those you get um, its association with gay men and um, that's why Julian and Sandy were were cast as out of work actors they were the, the kind of prototypical kind of um, Polari speakers so that's one route Another route is <laughs> I'll only do two. Another yes, route is um, <laughs> is via the docks. So you've got also um, versions of Polari being associated with, with people who are sailors um, who are kind of travelling around the Mediterranean um, and then coming back um, to port towns in the UK, places like Southampton, Portsmouth, also London and the dock, particularly the docks of, of London as well, and the east end of London, where you've got all these other communities living. So, um, Jewish communities who are speaking Yiddish, then you've got um, East Enders who are speaking Cockney rhyming slang as well. That all gets kind of mixed together, um, and, th- and then you've got this other kind of form of Polari which is coming out, which is less associated with the theatre, but more with the, the kind of Dockland areas and the kind of very vibrant communities and mixes there. Um, so some people have even spoken about a Western version of Polari, a sort of theatrical version, and an East End version um, with, associated with Docks. Um, and the East End version was seen as more complicated and slightly better, I think, um, from those who spoke it. There's a bit of rivalry. <laughs> Which, I mean, and this is this is fascinating because the, there's the discussion in the book about that you mentioned earlier about whether it's a language, an anti-language, a variant, um, all plays out. And you can see that in all of the 
this kind of the variety of influences so there's Romani the Yiddish um and but all of those things are also being used in other contexts so I mean I, that question of um, is it a language one of the things that I got very strongly from the book was this idea that there might be this selective use of what defines it isn't so much the content of the language as its functional as its function within that group so there'll be all sorts of overlaps with all sorts of groups who you know aren't anything to at all to do with gay men uh, i mean i'm very yeah i'm very struck at the the how can i put this aggressively heterosexual ewan mccall um including uh the word polonies in a song mm. uh, because obviously he he'd heard it from um the truck drivers that he was writing about uh but there's clear crossover very much so and um you know, one group of people that I, you know, who, who used a version of it, um, were in Newcastle, and, and there were kind of a, um, kind of men, men who were using it there, um, who were, um, sort of selling sex, for, you know, um, to, to other men, but they didn't identify as gay themselves, and and, and the same in in London, um, you know, later on, you know, you've got sort of um, men hanging around Piccadilly Circus who are who are kind of using versions of it and using it kind of almost as a trade language, talking about words for sex and words for money, words for different types of clients. But these men were actually quite, you know, sort of quite macho. Um, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't camp in any way. So kind of contrast those with men who were maybe using it in the 1930s who were quite camp, who were hanging around Piccadilly Circus selling sex and they would wear makeup and have, you know, quite complicated hairstyles and things like that. And then they used it, you know, all sorts of sex, but in a different way. So you've got you know, different different contexts for it and different types of people who are using it um, sometimes for the same reason, sometimes for different reasons. Um, but I think, you know, the kind of, the, the, I suppose the most well-known type of person using it is, is this kind of camp gay man from the fifties and, and, and a, a few earlier decades from before that as well, um, kind of hanging around, you know, urban centers, particularly around London, um, associated with theater or the entertainment world in some way or around Soho. I mean, you talk in the book about, one of its strengths, actually, for for camp gay men under those criminalised conditions, being it's, it is, uh, apart from the secrecy of what it enables you to communicate amongst yourselves, it, it is also an act of defiance um, on the appearance of uh, <laughs> Lily Law. You know, um, that it, it gives you a certain sort of waspish comeback. Uh, how much is that does that play out and how much then does that is is that sort of dissipated later yeah i'm very very much so i mean it it was it was a kind of language of i suppose protection but also you know aggression can be a form of defense as well can't it so i think they the people who used it they used it for community but they also used it to be you know quite waspish to each other as well and there was quite a lot of banter or one-upmanship with it as well even you know, showing that you were good at the language and better than somebody else was a form of getting one over them. And, but then, you know, the kind of insults that that they could use on each other, um, and it, it, you know, it, it's that you, you still see sort of echoes of that um, in, in, in the present day. Um, that TV show, RuPaul's Drag Race, has a you know a challenge where they have to sort of read each other and insult each other for humour, um, and it's very similar to what people were doing um, with Kalari, you know, kind of almost a, a century earlier. 
Um, so yes, you, you have that sense of, of kind of aggression, um, sometimes tempered with, with kind of kindness as well, and sort of showing that you know I could be rude to you because because we're such good friends, that sort of thing. Um, but then they turned it outwards as well. So you know, you mentioned Lily Law, which is the common term for the police. They had a lot, you know, Betty bracelets, <laughs> held handcuffs. Um, it's sad realities of the brooch was one they used. Yeah, yeah, and they they refer to um, a police station as the lily pad, for example. So they, you know, they kind of feminized the police um, quite a lot, made fun of them. You know, sometimes to sometimes their faces and flurry, they wouldn't get it. Um, and and you know, some some of the speakers in the sixties um, talked about how if they were walking down the street and somebody gave them a dirty look, you know, kind of because they guessed they were gay, they would sort of turn back on them and start shouting insults in Polari at them so there was that sort of sense of defiance there not not with everybody I think um but with with some people who were maybe a bit bolder than others um so yeah I think, I think there, there was that that sense of of using it um kind of almost aggressively and also maybe to to make fun of quite difficult circumstances as well so you know being arrested or being beaten up um things like that and to kind of almost to not make a drama out of that to kind of you know, kind of almost cast it as a triviality and maybe to be more upset about something else, you know, to do with like maybe you've broken a fingernail during a, a fight or something and you're kind of upset about that um, or about your clothing being ripped or something rather than actually, you know, being, being, being actually physically bruised. Um, you know, so, you know, I kind of got that impression as well that jokes were made, um, you know, in, in those difficult situations, sometimes in Polari as well. Right. Which sort of brings me to... One of the other very nice things in the book, which is how you place yourself within the research. Um, it's very endearing, uh, for one thing, but but the reflexivity um, is also essential, and I think is is kind of salutary for is something folklorists um, will recognise. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the in the research in the first place? Oh, it was it was Julian and Sandy that I mentioned earlier. It was I had a friend actually who was called Julian. And, um, <laughs> he had the tapes, and the BBC had released I think some audio tapes of Round the Horn um, in the nineteen nineties, early nineties. And you know, he said, "Have a listen to this," and we put them on and listened to them, and we found them very funny. And at the time, I was um, at Lancaster University, and I had the opportunity to do to, to do a PhD in linguistics, and you know, I had sort of various topics in mind and. That you know, of all the ones that I've had, I thought that actually probably would be the most interesting one to do. Um, you know, kind of keep me motivated for the duration of the PhD. Um, and I wasn't aware that anybody else was doing anything like that. And it kind of, I, I kind of, it was a mystery to me. You know, kind of the tapes themselves were a mystery um, with these these Polari words on them because I didn't know anyone who was using that language. Um, and this was only a few years later, thirty years later or so, um, less than that. Um, so I didn't know any gay people who were using those words. And I thought, you know, it's kind of a mystery to why they've all gone away so quickly, what's happened in that short period. Um, and I thought it would be a good challenge to kind of get, get the language down, because if it wasn't being used now, then it was likely that it would sort of die away very quickly and then be forgotten about. So I felt it would be, you know, a kind of interesting opportunity to, to get a record of that language as, as, as much as I could get it all down. I didn't want to necessarily revive it, but I wanted to, to, to have it recorded. And I wanted also to get some idea of the stories of the people who, who, who spoke it as well, what their lives were like, um, why they spoke it, 
in what contexts um, and how it created communities and, and, and things like that as well. So um, I, I did interviews with with speakers and went around Brighton and various cities as well, trying to, to find people. And it was it was fun. It was also quite challenging because I was quite young um, and quite shy. Um, and, <laughs> and, and a lot of the people I've met were quite larger than life and had lived very interesting lives as well. So um, mm. I kind of, you know, kind of, was quite happy to point a tape recorder at them and let them speak for an hour or two and just tell me their, <laughs> tell me what their lives. Fortunately, I didn't have to say very much back. Um, but it was it was it was a, a great privilege to be able to to talk to to these people. Um, it wasn't a very typical PhD, I think, um, <laughs> in, in in terms of you know for linguistics, looking at you know kind of um, I don't know the structures of language in some way. It was a much more kind of socially oriented PhD, um, and then, and then kind of brought in lots of theories from from queer theory and, and things and sociology and things like that as well so it was it was a nice mixture of things and I, I enjoyed it a lot and it's uh, yeah I mean there are one or two uh, lovely anecdotes of you as a fresh-faced researcher in the field for the first <laughs> time just being kind of confronted with this deluge of Polari uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yes and, and and one of the people I interviewed was a, a drag queen in living in Brighton and um I just I'd never met anybody like that before, um, and so it you know it was it was just this sort of contrast and in this, in, in, in this world that the, the drag queen lived in. I mean, they were, they were having their hair a wig fitted, you know, kind of it was a Saturday mm. afternoon, and sort of they'd fit me in to speak, and so they were having this kind of big wig fitted, and this hairdresser would come around and was kind of teasing this wig into this huge style, and there were lots of people outside running around and swearing and shouting at each other. It was all very very chaotic, um, and the drag queen was kind of trying to hold court over them all because she was in charge and, and, and kind of telling them to shut up and say, recording this, go away. And they kept popping their head around the door and shouting and things. It was, it was crazy, really, but, but great fun. I mean, I, I, I wonder, and, and you talked about trying to document this before it disappeared um, to some extent. To what extent did you find there's still that stubborn kind of persistence of it amongst the people that you were talking to? that it, it, it had kind of becomes, had it become secret again? I think to an extent it had become forgotten, yeah. I, right. Definitely the older people that I, that I interviewed still did use it. They didn't use it as much as they used to. And um, so their vocabulary was smaller and the number of contexts they used it in was smaller too. So it tended to be more they would use it maybe with friends their own age, say at a dinner party or something. And then they'd use the odd word and then they'd, they'd have a laugh. Um, but it, it certainly wasn't, you know, kind of on on the gay scene. You wouldn't sort of hear it um, kind of used lots in, in, in pubs and clubs. Although, from what I've heard, people in the theatre theatrical world did did still continue to, to use it, um, you know, all the way through, um, and, and, and that still you know, is, is known and used um, in the backstage and in dressing rooms and things like that. And you still, you still get, in the UK, you still get to hear it um, in certain circumstances. That that was where I first heard it, and and sort of continued to hear it um outside of julian and sandy uh, right and, and certainly you know theatrical usage and it wasn't a, a vast uh flexible vocabulary in the way that you've described with with gay men but there was a there was certainly you know kind of an undercurrent a, a, a residual core of vocabulary that was in regular use um, yes yes you and, and i still hear words. it yeah, 
yeah, words like lallies and boner and things like yeah. that probably be, being used quite a lot in, in those contexts and then people sort of laughing when, when, when they hear them used, yeah. And so, yeah. so, yeah, so I think it did, it kind of reduced, you know, in all sorts of ways, kind of, you know, kind of the, the number of words being used, the number of times it's used and the context all kind of getting smaller and smaller. Um, but not but not going away completely, I think. And then you have this very interesting kind of, almost like a twist in the story that kind of t- changed um, in events um, in the sort of early 1990s when you have this kind of almost like a rediscovery of it um, for political purposes as well, which is kind of very interesting because before that, it's been criticised within gay communities as being apolitical or, or kind of you know, politically incorrect. And then, and then you get these these kind of more politicized people um, from a different group in the late eighties, early nineties, called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who are a group of um, gay men who dress as nuns, um, and they they have these um, ceremonies where they um, bless um, you know gay people or, or make them saints if they've done a lot for the community. Um, or, or they carry out partnership ceremonies, and this was long before there was civil partnerships or gay marriage. Um, and so they start using Polari in this very ceremonial way um, you know, in, in, in these situations. Um, and for them, they say it's kind of like a dead language, a bit like how Latin is to Catholics. So they're using it in the same way in their ceremonies um, to give their ceremonies a bit of, I suppose, exotic feeling, a bit of glamour, you know, a bit mystical. Um, and so that, that, that they're using these in, in this way, and also to be quite politically defiant as well. Um, you know, this is a period where you've got Section 28, that, that the, um, the law which forbade promotion of homosexuality by local education authorities. You've got HIV AIDS and, and the media having this huge kind of moral panic around, around gay men in particular. Um, and so it's, it's kind of quite a, quite a kind of dark time, I think, to be, to be LGBT plus, um, you know, um, Attitude surveys, I think there was one in 1987, which suggested that um, something like 75% of people thought that homosexuality was always wrong or mostly wrong. Um, you know, so a large portion of, of, of the you know, population were, were quite anti-gay at that point. Um, so you have the sisters using Quarry in this kind of more celebratory way, um, you know, to kind of make a political statement, you know, we're going to have these sermons, we're going to bless people, make them saints. They, they sang to them, Derek Jarman, I think most famously, the, the filmmaker. And this was just a, you know, a few years before, before he died of, um, you know, HIV-related illnesses. And he said it was one of the happiest days of his life when, when they, they kind of made him a saint. And they did it at his, his home um, by Dungeness, and they had him on the beach, and they took him in the water and kind of baptised him as well. Um, so it was... <laughs> That was really the start, I think, of, of a kind of reassessment of Polari. Um, some of the people involved in that wrote a couple of um, papers on it, chapters, um, articles, and then academics started to get interested in it again. Um, and so you have this kind of new set of people who are finding it interesting. Um, and, then, and then businesses start to pick up on it as well. So you get this sort of sense of it becoming something that businesses can use to kind of advertise that you know, this is a gay venue um, so you've got clothes shops and restaurants and bars call, calling themselves after Polari words. Um, and then, you know, people having cocktail menus in Polari, for example, in certain places. Or there's now a clothing range, um, which is called Polari Polari, um, with Louis Tomlinson um, from One Direction modelling clothes with, you know, big big hoodies with the word Polari across the front of it. So you get a sense it's becoming kind of 
quite gentrified in a way, um, with all this kind of interest in it. Quite, you know, quite quite respectable, established people, you know, um, playwrights writing plays about Polari and historians and linguists and things. So it's come a very long way mm-hmm. from its kind of roots when it's associated with these kind of working class camp gay men or, or prostitutes um, kind of 100 years earlier. Which is which is getting quite quite interesting and funny. Um, most most languages don't go on that that sort of route. I think they they, they either just go you know die out and are forgotten, but they don't get this kind of fun revival. So it's it's quite a lucky language, I think, in some ways. Yeah, that, <laughs> the, that description of the businesses it just sounds like a, a literalization of Julian and Sandy's latest Bonaventure, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Yes. Boner togs and things like yes, that. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, I mean, and, and that question, and I, I'll kind of wrap it up fairly soon. But uh, but that question, I think, does bring neatly back to the beginning, and that and and you know, Polari's magpie taking of bits to make its own language, or to to make it to create its own usages um, and that that's continuing in lots of ways, lots of unpredicted and very different ways. How do you see, do you see, can you get any sense of a future trajectory for Polari or what's coming out of Polari? It's hard. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think it's going to go away. I, I, I'm always interested in what, people are doing with it in a way that I wouldn't have predicted. Um, and particularly younger people and, and people who are kind of involved in the creative arts as well. So, um, you know, it's sort of sense that younger people are discovering it, being quite delighted by it when they discover it and then, and then thinking of new things to do with it. And so, you know, somebody created a, an iPhone app a while ago with, with it. Um, and, um, you know, Lots of artists have used it in, in, in quite creative ways. Um, there's been plays um, kind of put on about it as well. Um, you know, the, the clothing brand is another nice example too. So it, it feels like it has the capacity to, to continue to change um, with people kind of continuing to add new words to it to kind of suggest kind of, you know, more, more modern concepts, you know, so things like the internet or Facebook, I think, you know, you could sort of, you know, update it to, to have words like Facebook on there or Twitter or things as well. Um, you know, I think the internet is what, in, in a way, is another reason, I think, why it's not going to go away completely because, you know, if you if you type in Polari into, say, Twitter or something to search, you know, there's, you know, there's conversations, you know, every, every day someone's talking about it still. So, you know, there's probably a lot more discussion about it now than there, there was 30 years ago, just due to the internet and, and you know, my book and, and, and other people who've written things about it as well. Um, so I think, you know, it, 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 it happily is recorded for posterity, which is nice to know. And it's always nice seeing new general people, you know, writing to, we still write to me, you know, a lot, you know, saying they've just discovered it and they're fascinated by it and they, they'd like to, to, to do this project on it or something. Would I, would I help them advise them? Um, and that's, that's lovely. Yeah. Happening. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's not the same as it was when they're using it 100 years ago, but, it, but it's always changed. So one thing that people sometimes do is they take 
the dictionary that I've created, which you know has lots of layers, different levels of, of, of words from different time periods and different types of users. And they kind of mix it all up together and then they kind of create this new version of Polari, which is just everything in the kitchen sink all kind of thrown in together. And I think probably nobody would have spoken Polari in that way because it's just too much of everything. And they would have had their own little versions. And so they're kind of creating this kind of super version of it now um, sometimes, which probably isn't how it would have been used. Um, but that's fine. You know, that's that. It, there's no reason why Polari has to stay the same. And, you know, there's, it never was about staying the same. It was always about changing. So it should be allowed to develop in whichever way people want to develop it. And it's still Polari. That's okay. Yes. Yes. And, and in a way, that's, I think that's a positive thing. You, you talk in the book about how the, when the sisters create this high Polari, um, it has a sort of rather rarefied uh ritualized use but what you're talking about here is people trying to make it adaptive uh, and, and using it for their own uh immediate purposes so what will determine its future is how far those uses are taken on and become integral to to the community that's using it um, that's so, right yeah and i don't think i don't think the communities are going anywhere in fact you know i think i think in, in some ways you know we, we talk about the lgbt plus q community um but it's really lots of communities um you know and even if you take one of those letters within that used up lots and lots of communities within that too um, and that's how it's always been i mean the idea of communities are a useful one i think to, to kind of rally around but when you sort of get it down to the you know the, the ground you know it, it's small groups of people interacting maybe people going to the same bar but you know, you've got your friends as well, and, and, and they're constantly, constantly changing. Um, so, and that's, I think, why it was so difficult to, to kind of get a sense of what Polari was, because everyone was using it in these small groups, and everyone was using a slightly different version of it and inventing their own words as well. So you've got kind of a core vocabulary, and then you've got this massive fringe vocabulary of lots of different, different people using it in different ways. And I think that's, that has the potential to continue as well, which is lovely. And as you say, your book, I think, is um, has itself fed into that. Um, and I, I'm going to conclude now by making a, a kind of an urgent appeal to the podcast's readers. If you haven't already read this book, do, because it's absolutely great. Um, it, it was, you know, this was something with which I was not unfamiliar, but there's a lot in it that's going to be new to um, anybody who's, who's come to Polari, you know, he, he comes even with some background in Polari. Um, and so just once again, uh, I want to thank Paul Baker for this lovely book and for having a chat with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a great pleasure. Thanks. My thanks go to Professor Paul Baker and Dr. Paul Cowdell for a fascinating look into the world of Polari. It's an interesting area of crossover between linguistics and social history and folklore. You can get a copy of Paul's book, Fabulosa, published by Reaction Books from all good bookshops. And do also take a look at the film Putting on the Dish on YouTube as well. We have a couple of great live online events coming up in December, for which tickets are now available. On Monday the 12th, you can enjoy an audience with Danny Robbins the creator of Battersea Poltergeist and Uncanny, and a new series for BBC Radio 4 just announced, The Witch Farm. Danny's also the author of the West End hit Play 222, A Ghost Story. 
you'll have a chance to put your questions to Danny after the discussion. And then, on Saturday the 17th of December, you can enjoy some chilling winter tales with professional storyteller and host of the Time Between Times podcast, Owen Staten. Tickets for these events are only £5 each, and money helps to support the work of the Folklore Library and Archive, our organisation dedicated to the preservation of folklore materials. You can get tickets now from the online store on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Additional material for this episode was written by Tracy Nicholas. Thanks for listening. See you next time.